0: You are listening to the Bellator Christie podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now step into the arena of ideas with your host, Dr. Brian Chilton. Good to you Majestic, Majestic Mountains of Northwestern North Carolina This is the Bellator Christie Podcast Where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas Hello friends, my name is Dr. Brian Chilton And I'll be your host for the next uh, 30 minutes to an hour That we have together as we discuss the issues that truly matter Uh, We discuss everything from Christian apologetics To theology, biblical studies, history And a whole lot more philosophy You name it, we discuss it here on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Uh, Well, again, we just want to thank you for joining us today, wherever you may be. Uh, This week, uh, still flying solo, uh, Curtis Evolo, our co-host, he is uh, still taking care of some... um, some uh, a, a sick daughter, and so we want to continue to remember uh, Curtis, his daughter Brittany, and entire family, and uh, praying for a speedy recovery for Miss Brittany. And so uh, we just hope, just hope she knows that we're all thinking about her, love her, and and pray for a speedy recovery. And so uh, we do hope she gets back um, back on her feet very soon. Uh, we want to again thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, we've got really kind of a jam-packed podcast tonight. We're going to actually cover two episodes, uh, two topics on one episode. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about theories on human origins and the human soul. Uh, but before we get into into the discussion tonight, I want to kind of let you know about uh, what's coming up ahead on the Bellator Christie podcast, as we have had a little bit of a tweak in our schedule. So coming up, Next week, we're going to have Dr. Michelle Johnson with us. Uh, as She's going to discuss, she's going to answer the question, what is the image of God? The image of God is also known in theology circles as the Amagio Dei. What is the image of God? That's going to be the topic of discussion coming up next week. Now, providing that everything is good on the home front, everything is... Uh, kosher that we're able to have this then coming up the week after that uh, we hope to have our um, ever faithful co-host Curtis Everlo, the cowboy apologist on with us uh, for another edition of the questions on that is given the caveat that everything goes well with his daughter that she feels better and he's able to uh do that if not we may have just kind of a uh we may have kind of a um free-flowing podcast discussing some topics uh we may and we, or we may skip that week uh <laughs> or we may even have uh, a, a topic that was originally scheduled to be later in the season uh, on that week so Be patient with us. We're we're going to kind of go with the flow and uh, see how things roll. So that will be coming up. That will actually close out the month of uh, February. And then coming up in March, uh, we've got a little bit bit of a tweak in the scheduling here. We're going to have uh, really one discussion on the issue of anthropology and transhumanism. We're going to have a panel discussion with uh, Dr. Deanna Huff and Ryan Pawley, uh, from fr- our, our good friend from California. He's got a radio show out that way and uh, a podcast that he hosts as well. They're going to both be on with us for a panel discussion discussing uh, anthropology and transhumanism. That should be a great show. Fourteenth, we're not sure exactly what we're going to do with the open spot. We may move another one of the episodes in that spot, and finish the season a little earlier than anticipated. Uh, But then from there, we'll talk to Dr. Leo Purser about why are we here. We will have a discussion with Dr. T.J. Gentry on the institution of marriage. Quite frankly, we may see if Dr. Gentry is able, we may plug that podcast in the 14th spot. So it's a work in progress. And then then in April, we're going to have a study on uh, homartology, the study of sin, and a few concluding episodes, questions on, and then a panel, another panel discussion on an upcoming book we have uh, hope to set, uh, hope to publish uh, in May, and so that will finish out season seven of the Billie Christie podcast. So we've got a lot of stuff still ahead, and so we hope you join us for the ride. Uh, So speaking of ride, we've got a very interesting ride that we're going to take tonight and it could be one that's a little complicated, uh, hopefully not, but we want to talk about two things tonight. We want to talk about theories on human origin. So we've started this new series on anthropology. Anthropology coming from two words, Lagos meaning the word, but it also means the study of something. And then anthropos, which means man or humanity. So put those together. Anthropology means the study of humanity. So we want to ask two questions tonight. Where did we come from as human beings? And then we want to ask the question, what is the human soul? What constitutes what constitutes a person as a homo sapien? a human being those are the two the two questions we seek to answer tonight so first and foremost let's take a look at the theories on human origins uh, how did humanity come to exist this is an age old question as we look at our lives and we we recognize that we are human beings that we have a consciousness we have of uh, mind, will, and emotions, and we have, uh, we have this thing we know as the I, the the person we are, this individual uh, that we claim to be, that that we know ourselves to be. The question is, how did we get here? I mean, that's a question I've asked many, many. You know, I was born in 1977. And I've often thought about, as I study history, which I love studying history, but I've often thought about the question, well, where was I? What was I before 1977? Well, I wasn't around. I I didn't exist at that time. And when we think of our own mortality, we think of our own being as human beings, that can be really uh, eye-opening to stop and consider the fact that we haven't always been here and we won't always be be on this planet. We won't always live on planet earth. So that brings the question before we know where we're going uh, or what's going to happen to us, we first ask the question where have we come from? How did we begin? And there are several different theories uh, proposed to describe how we as human beings came about. There's what's called the evolutionary spontaneous origin, or autobiogenesis. That's one theory we'll discuss. The second theory is called panspermia. Uh, We'll talk about that. That's a very fascinating uh, theory that's gaining a lot of attention Uh, among certain circles these days. And then finally we see special creation or otherwise known as fiat creation uh, that is also uh, a theory. And then after that, we'll move into our discussion on the human soul. So, as we talk about who we are as human beings. So, first of all, let's take a look at the, the idea of the evolutionary spontaneous origin or the autobiogenesis. This is a theory that holds that, that claims that life spontaneously formed from non living materials. So, if you don't evoke a creator, then how did life come to be? Well, according to this theory, life came to be just spontaneously came from to be living materials from non-living materials because we realize that rocks don't, it, rocks aren't sentient beings. We realize that dirt <laughs> isn't a sentient being, so it is a non-living thing. Uh, so, how did living things with consciousness, conscious consciousness? Uh, how did living things come from non-living things? Well, according to this theory, they just spontaneously came to exist. And this was popularized by von Helmont in 1577 to 1644. He stated that life originated uh, autobiogenetically uh, from non-living decaying and rotting material like straw, mud, and so on and so forth. Uh, he believed that this came, you know, this Many advocates would say that this came about by 3.5 billion years ago. Uh, but this isn't just original to von Helmont. There was a guy, uh, a Greek uh, philosopher back in 8- 588 B.C., uh, a guy by the name of a- a- Anaximander who proposed that air was the sole cause of life. Charles Darwin later on in 1809 1882 popularized the theory of evolution in his uh, book the origin of the species uh, so he he proposed that uh, all life developed uh, and came about came to be from uh, as it is today, as a, from a process of evolution, moving from one species of animal to the other, but that start had to have come by. and Of course, he didn't, to my knowledge, he didn't make any claim as to how life came to be. But, but the the idea, the going thought, was that it just sprang into existence some, somehow. Uh, but there are several problems with this theory, and, and that is that it's been shown time and time again that non-living material cannot produce living things. Now, the few times where so people have thought had thought that maybe an experiment showed this to be the case, uh, it, it wasn't actually that life came from a non-living thing. I think there was one experiment, if memory serves correctly, that involved... Uh, maggots or some some creature like that coming to be on, off of a rock. And, and many people thought, well, this rock or this dirt must have given rise to these maggots. Well, come to find out, no. Uh, they came about by an already existing animal that laid eggs and sprang in the maggots and, and came to be that way. It wasn't that life came from non living things, life came from life. Uh, so, to my knowledge, Uh, All attempts to show otherwise have failed because it has been shown that living material that seemingly came from non-living materials actually sprung from already living things on a non-living surface. So... Every experiment, to my knowledge, uh, has, has not been proved, has, could not prove, and has not proven that living things could spring from non living things. Francisco Redi in 1688 actually disproved the theory. He was an Italian physician who took the flesh and cooked it so that no organisms were left alive. He placed the flesh in three jars. One jar was covered with parchment, one was covered with uh, muslin, and the third was left open. The flesh meat decayed, and all the jars and flies were attracted toward all three jars. He observed that the maggots developed in uncovered jars through the flies, uh, through the flies, vis- though the flies visited other jars. The flies entered only the open jar and laid eggs, which produced larvae. Uh, this confirmed that maggots arise from eggs and not from decaying meat. Uh, the Miller-Urey experiment tried to get around this. They tried to argue in this experiment that lightning first created the amino acids needed for life. However, it was later shown that uh, the, the chemicals making up the prebiotic soup of the Earth's surface uh, would not have been conducive to make amino acids from a lightning strike in fact it would have been something more comparable to battery acid which is not conducive for any life to exist such an acid would hinder instead of hasten the development of amino acids thus disproving the theory in the end so it does not seem like uh that life could spring from non-living things so if life could not spring from non-living things and had to spring from other living things, then then the the idea is well maybe the life that uh, came about didn't come from this planet but came from elsewhere in the cosmos. Well, and that's where we enter the new theory called panspermia, or otherwise some people say. Uh, to who? Oops, sorry. Phone is trying to call Dr. Purser So if Dr. Purser's is called I do apologize Dr. P- Purser I said panspermia And is trying to call Dr. Purser I-, I apologize Dr. Purser I don't know what's going on with my phone here uh, <laughs> By the way Happy birthday to Dr. Leo Purser uh, He was born on Valentine's Day and we hope and pray That he had a wonderful birthday at that So So uh, Anyhow, the definition panspermia is a compound word consisting of two Greek words, pan meaning all and sperma meaning seed. Panspermia can refer to one one of two beliefs. One, that a meteorite carried life to the world and started life that way. Another (laughs) more popular uh, version of panspermia holds that sentient alien beings that evolved by naturalistic means in some other part of the cosmos, brought life on earth and implanted life, seeded life on earth. Now, it's interesting. So people who hold this belief wouldn't necessarily say that God created it, although some people could say that maybe God sent the meteorite to to earth and planted life that way. But more likely than not, most people... More, more often than not, most people who hold the idea of panspermia believe that aliens did it. It's kind of like that famous meme uh, from uh, from Alien, uh, what, was it? what was it called? Alien, Ancient Aliens or something like that, where one guy says, I'm not saying aliens did it, but aliens did it. <laughs> Well, that's kind of sort of what this theory holds. Uh, It's that aliens of some sort, sentient beings from a far distant galaxy, must have been responsible for implanting life on Earth, and that's how it came to be. Again, this shows just how complicated and how puzzling the origin of life truly is. Now, who advocates this? Well, it it may surprise you that famed atheist Richard Dawkins... On the movie, on the Ben Stein movie, expelled no intelligence allowed, advocated panspermia. He held that the universe had all the hallmarks, all the earmarks of this being designed. He said there's no way we could get around that. But he he said that it's likely that the universe was designed, or that the that life on Earth was designed, but it didn't come from God. It came from aliens across the cosmos that evolved in very naturalistic means. Richard Dawkins wasn't the first to think that this could be the case. Uh, In the 5th century BC, Greek Greek naturalist uh, Anaxagoras This is what happens when you have a southern boy trying to pronounce Greek words. It doesn't always come out right. Anaxagoras uh, he also advocated uh, this, this belief that uh, somehow life was planted, uh, planted some form or fashion, uh, on earth and came to be. So advocates of both panspermia and evolutionary spontaneous origin uh, or autobiogenesis uh, maintained that human life came to existence by evolutionary means and just sprang into life or was seeded by some other alien life form. But there are several problems with both of these theories. The first and f- most prominent problem is that there's no independent verification that panspermia or our autobiogenesis auto is are correct. There's no independent verification validation that life can spring from non-living things, and there's no independent verification that some alien life form implanted life on Earth. And with the issue with aliens, even if they do exist, you have the problem of first causation, the problem of first cause. If these alien beings implanted life on earth, they developed and planted life on earth, then you have to ask the question, who created the aliens? Now, some people will say, well, couldn't you say the same thing about God? Who created God? No, you can't, because God is understood as an uncaused agent, an uncaused cause, a, a, not, not a self-automating being, but one who's always existed by the very nature of who God is. So God is understood as being an eternal uncaused self-existent entity, a self-existent being. Okay? So one you don't you have a problem with aliens, you don't have a problem with God. Something must have caused, must something must be an uncaused eternal agent to bring forth life. Something has to be since we know that life comes from life. And since we know that aliens, if they exist, must have an original causation to their existence, then we know that there is one ultimate cause behind all life, and that ultimate cause must be god something someone that is eternal a living being that is eternal that gives since life comes from life and since we have to have an eternal cause a causing agent that only the only answer is that that agent must be god god is the only answer that works and this brings us to the final The final uh, theory. And that is special creation or fiat creation. This is the belief that God created life by a special act of creation. Humanity did not necessarily evolve from previous creatures, but human beings were a special creation of God. And this is what we mean when we say that human beings were made in the imagio Dei. The imagio Dei means the image of God. Now what is it what is the image of God? Now we're going to talk a little bit more about this whole concept next week with Dr. Michelle Johnson. Um, but we see that human beings are special creations. Now does this make us boastful and proud? Does this make are we guilty of speciesism, thinking that humanity is better than any other species by saying this? No, here's a reason. You don't see animals of other walks. Building temples, building churches, mosques. Uh, you don't see though. You don't see that. Animals live by their instincts. Now, I'm not saying that animals aren't smart. Animals are very smart, especially certain dogs. My cat. We have a cat who is extremely smart. He's too. He's too smart. He's too smart for his own good. He gets into trouble a lot of times because he's so smart. But human beings have this special spiritual aspect to themselves, and we're going to talk about that in a few in a few moments. But part of that is what makes us made in the image of God, that imagio Dei, part of that is what makes us who we are. So who advocates uh, creation being a special act of God and human beings being a special act of God? Well, obviously Christians do. We find that in the New Testament, the Bible. Uh, in the Old Testament as well. Jewish individuals advocate this in the Tanakh, uh, the Old Testament, Hebrew Old, Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, containing, it's called Tanakh, from three consonants, T, meaning Torah, the law, uh, N, from the Nevi'im, speaking of the prophets, and K, of the Ketuvim, talking about the special writings. Uh, some branches of Islam claim that uh, human beings are a special creation of God as found in the Quran, and most monotheistic religions advocate this as well. So, what are some reasons we have to believe that this is true? Well, number one, human beings are sentient and self-aware beings. We have a consciousness. And this brings us to the second problem. Conscious, consciousness cannot be explained away by naturalistic means. The whole a- issue of consciousness is something that is very complicated, and to my knowledge, cannot be shown to be produced by natural things because it exists has to in- exist independently apart from natural natural things. Um, because otherwise, you know, your body recreates cells every nine years. And if you say all your consciousness is just a part of your material body, then quite frankly, you're not the same person every nine years. But we understand, listen, I'm I'm getting closer and closer to 50. Getting closer and closer to 50. And, and I've got to tell you, I can remember what happened nine years ago. And I, I know that, yes, I have you know, changed and grown spiritually, but I'm still the same person that I was nine, ten years ago. That can't be so if consciousness is a production of the natural body. It just can't be. Consciousness exists uh, in some sense apart from the natural body. And, and we see there are reasons to believe from the cosmological arguments that we need to have a first cause, and the first cause must be God, must be an intelligent, powerful, loving wise being and we know that to to be to describe god Teleog- teleological arguments talking about arguments from design speaks to the reason for believing in um, the 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 special creation of humanity Argument from beauty The fact that we see That we recognize beauty uh, and, and goodness in creation Speaks to the special creation that we are uh, Because otherwise We would not be able to appreciate beauty And goodness We wouldn't know goodness without God The design of the human body Speaks of the special creation As does the design of creation itself We've already mentioned this, the necessity of a first cause. Something has to be eternal, and life comes from life, so life has to come from an eternal living being. We know that living being to be God. And then finally, there's this interesting there's an interesting theory called quantum entanglement that speaks of the necessity of having a cosmic observer. And it's been shown that in quantum mechanics that Certain uh, quarks, bosons, things of this nature act differently when they're being viewed from when they're not being viewed. And sometimes it requires something being viewed for it to even come into being. Now, I don't pretend to understand all there is to know about quantum mechanics. I don't pretend to know everything there is to know about quantum entanglement. But it is interesting because according to this theory you had to have some conscious being existing prior to the orig- origination or the um, beginning of the universe for it to exist. Could it be that the reality we know is, is only possible if we're being observed by an eternal God? Well, could be. Uh, but again, that's beyond the scope of this podcast. I just mention that to say there are many reasons for believing that life came from God, that we are special creations of God, and that, that all of creation is a special work of God. Now, having said that, what does this mean to us regarding the whole nature of humanity and and, and who we are as as beings? Well, it means... That every single life has meaning, purpose, and value. Now, there's a ridiculous argument going on on online. And you know what? There have been so many opinions given about this argument. I am not even going to bother you with my opinion on it. But I will just say this. I believe... That every life has meaning, purpose, and value. And I believe that every person matters because they are a special creation of God. God's desire is to seek and to save the lost. God's desire is to bring all men to himself, all people to himself, men, women, rich, poor, old, young, black, white, Arab, Jew, Russian, uh, Mexican, fill in the blank, whatever. It's God's desire to bring people to himself. It just simply is. So, with all that being said, it means that the second great commandment has a great value in our lives because it tells us that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that means that we love each and every person that we come in contact with. Because every person has value. Now, I've got to move on. I'd love to stay there, I'd love to camp out there, but I need to move on. So this is part two. Okay. Let's take it let's, so we see that the human beings are a special creation of God. We see that our lives have meaning, purpose, and value, but then we have to ask the question, okay, then what is the human soul? Okay, what is the human soul? Well, there are three interpretations. And when we talk about the human soul, we're talking about that e- immaterial creation uh immaterial consciousness we're talking about that immaterial uh aspect of who we are okay there are three ways that people have viewed this there's the monist perspective there's the dualist perspective and there's the tripartite perspective okay 1 2 and 3 the monist perspective holds is the belief that that only the body exists and there is no soul Monists do not believe in an afterlife, but if they do, they will hold in in the belief of the final resurrection without an intermediate state. An intermediate state is talking about that time between our death and the final resurrection. Now, there are several people who advocate this viewpoint, Seventh-day Adventists. Many in the Adventist movement, not all, many in the Adventist movement will maintain this belief. Those from the Amazing Facts Ministry will hold this belief. Some, maybe not all, Jehovah Witnesses hold this viewpoint. Well, there are several problems with the monistic interpretation. Now, we've hit this on previous podcasts, and if you want more of a detail concerning this this uh, this conversation, then I would encourage you to go back and look through, peruse through earlier podcasts that deal with this whole issue. You'll find many more biblical passages. Concerning this issue And even go check out my book uh, Conversations About Heaven Difficult Questions About Our Eternal Home uh, Available at bookstores everywhere And available on Amazon uh, Especially Amazon and com. Go check it out uh, But but I give more of a detail on this issue in the book So there are problems uh, First of all is The problem with near death experiences If near death experiences are true And I believe they are Then this almost certainly Defeats the monistic perspective. There's also the problem of consciousness, as we've as we've mentioned. Uh, if if um, if, and again. I, Time limitations won't allow me to give a full treatment of this issue, but there have been studies that have shown that a person can tell if they're hooked up to a device and there's an electrical shock that moves their finger, they can tell whether they themselves, the person can tell whether they themselves are moving their finger or whether that shock involved is moving their finger. They can tell the difference between the two. If they were, if all we are are material beings without a consciousness, then we shouldn't be able to tell the difference, and people can. There's also the biblical, numerous biblical teachings on the afterlife indicating the fact that we are more than just. The material beings. Uh, I think about Jesus and his teaching, where he tells at the at the tomb of Lazarus. He tells Mary and Martha and the people there, "If you, those who live and believe in me, will never die, and those who believe in me, if if they die, will will, uh, will it. The, the one who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. But the one who lives and believes in me, he goes on to say in Greek, will know, not never die. That means it's an impossibility for that person to die. They're just not going to. They're not going to cease to exist. They're going to continue on with God in the afterlife. Prior to the final resurrection, and the final resurrection, we're going to be made and, and be given and to be given spiritual bodies, soma, uh spiritual bodies, and it's going to be far superior to this body that we have now. Okay, so there there are monists who says that our, who say that our uh, promise is found in that future body, but even then, understand that body is going to be far superior to the body we have now. It's going to be far superior to it. So there's the monistic perspective. It has a world of problems, but then there are dualists, dualists who believe in the distinction between the soul and body. They believe that we have an immaterial aspect of our lives, that is the soul, and they also believe that we have a material aspect of our lives being uh, our material portion of our bodies, uh, of ourselves, or being, being the body. So, immaterial part of us, that's the soul. The material part of us, that's the body. But they both exist dually in some form or fashion. So you have an immaterial soul, you have a material body. That's dualism. But there are many types of dualism. There's what's called soulism. Now I just give you the caveat here. Some philosophers may call this something different. Uh, it may be termed by different philo- different people. But the, the, the soulist or the soulism uh, belief is the belief that the soul could have existed before the body was born, and some versions may even accept the idea of reincarnation. So there are certain advocates of this position, including most Prominently, that of Plato and Socrates. Socrates and Plato held this view quite strongly. Uh, Oregon of Alexandria, so people call him Origin of Alexandria, he also seemed to hold this perspective as well that the souls exist, that human souls existed prior to our incarnation. That means prior to our birth. That there's a soul, there's a body, that that it lives somewhat independently so to speak, that the body is kind of like a housed soul. We're kind of like a ghost in a box, if you will. So Plato, Oregon of Alexandria held these views. But there's also what's called substance dualism. And this is the idea that the body and soul are comprised of two different substances and exist on two different planes. And you have some very prominent people who held this viewpoint, including Rene Descartes, Immanuel Kant, Gottfried Uh, Wilhelm Leibniz and J.P. Moreland, modern theologian philosopher uh, out at Biola University. So these guys held to substance dualism, and there are many other advocates of substance dualism as well. It's probably one of the more popular versions of dualism today. There's also what's called property dualism, and this is the the idea that the physical brain has non-physical properties which may comprise soulish features of the brain, okay, and uh, this is this is accepted by individuals such as retired NYU philosopher and professor of law Thomas Nagel. Uh, he's the one that wrote the book Mind and Cosmos, why naturalism is almost certainly false. Uh, he's not he's not a Christian either, and he's he held in that view. British philosopher Galen John Strawson also holds to uh, property dualism, as does Saul Kripke, among many others. So this is another viewpoint of the soul. Then there's what's called hylomorphism. This is the belief that the soul forms the body to comprise the whole of humanity. The soul is created just prior to the body. Uh, there may be some, in, maybe there is some indication that the soul may be created first, and then it formulates the body thereafter. Uh, the soul is created prior to the body, after which the soul was incorruptible and immortal and can survive the death of a body this viewpoint holds as does substance dualism that upon death the soul lives on even though the body has died according to aristotelian and mystic thought a person is not a whole person though until the final resurrection really more in mystic thought And even then, it's because the promised hope is the restoration of the soul and the restoration of the body for that spiritual body that's to come. But even then, understand, until mystic thought, Thomas Aquinas strongly held, strongly advocated that the soul would survive death And it is immortal, he says. It's indestructible and it's incorruptible. The soul cannot be destroyed. So, who holds this viewpoint of hylomorphism? Again, morphe meaning form, hylos meaning uh, body. It's a form-body type of union, if you will. Aristotle was a non-Christian philosopher. He held to hylomorphism, as did Thomas Aquinas, who came from a Christian perspective. And the late great Norman Geisler also advocated the view of hylomorphism. Now, let's also take a look at one more theory before we navigate back to see which of these theories make the most sense. Tripartitism is the belief that a person is comprised of three parts, a soul, a spirit, and a body. Now, the Christian view uh, taken from the tripartite division it comes from first thessalonians five twenty three, which speaks of a person existing as a soul, a body, and a spirit. According to this view, a person is a, a excuse me, according to this view, the body is a person's physical being. The soul contains a person's mind, will, and emotions, and the spirit is what connects an individual to God. However, Norman Geisler has rightly argued in his works, that the immaterial part of a person likely contains both soul and spirit. Thus, there's no need to divide the two as separate entities. It may be that our soul contains that soulish aspect and that spirit aspect, but they both ex- exist together as an immaterial union. If a person did did have soul and spirit existing separately, then we have to ask the question, which part of the spirit goes, or which part of the person goes to heaven? The soul or the spirit? And so there's no clear answer to that. Most people who hold a tripartitism would say the soul and spirit. But if the soul and spirit go together as a unified one, then why say necessarily that they exist as three separate entities? Ultimately, as Norman Geisler has argued, we must deduce that there are two aspects of a person, the soul and the body, but within the soul, we see the soulish aspect and the spirit aspect combined into one immaterial in reality. Now, what are some reasons we have to believe in dualism? As we've already mentioned, the problem of consciousness is best explained by the dualist thought. Now, whichever one you hold to, whether it's property dualism, substance dualism, holomorphism, Soulism, whichever one you hold to, um, they seem to answer the problem of consciousness that monism doesn't. I think we can say naturalism and monism, according to the evidence of near-death experiences, even studies in consciousness, and things of this nature, and even quantum mechanics, I think we have every good reason to believe that naturalism or monism, the belief that only the body exists, is most certainly False. There is an aspect of us that lives on eternally. There is an aspect of us, a part of us, that survives death. There's also the problem of individuality and self-identity. As we mentioned, every 40 years, the body changes on a cellular molecular level. If you say, suppose for instance, that a person commits a crime back in two thousand. Uh, 14. It's 2024 when this podcast is airing. It's it's February 15th, 2024 when this podcast is being recorded and first aired. So let's suppose for a moment that a person commits a crime on February 15th of 2014. If you think that we change, that all we are is a body and nothing more, then you could not Hold someone accountable for a crime they committed ten years ago because physically they would be a completely different person. Now you know that that is completely nonsense. <laughs> I know is complete nonsense. So there, we understand there must be some unifying factor in our bodies, factor in our lives that makes us who we are. And that can't be our bodies alone. It has to be something more than just our bodies. And, of course, that would speak to the necessity of the human soul. There's also the problem of near-death experiences. Just just the other day, never even heard this before, not going to mention who it was, not going to mention the person she spoke of as a, a loved one she had. But she spoke of how this loved one had an encounter, <laughs> apparently, had momentarily died, and seen a loved one that they knew nothing about, and talked about the beautiful sights and about this fun activity that this young person held with this loved one. <laughs> That had passed as that right around the time that the person was born. And the individual said there was no way this, this young person could have known about the person who passed. It was not a hallucination, friend. This person saw the other side. And there are countless stories of people who have seen loved ones in heaven people who have experienced things that cannot be explained and individuals who have seen objectively things outside their bodies that they could not have known and has been corroborated that have been corroborated by individuals who were in that room there's also a study that Kenneth Ring conducted that showed how 21 individuals who were blind had visual encounters after their deaths only and, and accurately reported things in the rooms that they could not have known about only to return to their bodies in a blinded state. Outside the bodies they had sight. When they returned to their bodies they did not because their physical eyes had malfunctioned for whatever reason many years prior there is no way to explain these cases outside of the conscious living soul surviving death friend, working as a hospice chaplain where I I encounter death about every day. I can tell you. I've been in hospice ministry for, for. Well this September will be four years. And I can tell you this. I am more certain now. That there's a heaven. Than I've ever been. In my life. So there's the problem of consciousness. Consciousness. There's the problem of individuality, self-identity. There's a the problem of near-death experiences. There's also the argument from reason, and this comes from C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis, and this was uh, I can't see this was reported by Reppert in his book C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea. Uh, I, I didn't get the reference where where C.S. Lewis said this, but Lewis said this. I think it's from mere Christianity if I'm not mistaken. I think I believe that's where it is, but it says the argument postulates that if as naturalism entails all of our thoughts are the effect of a physical cause, then we have no reason for assuming that they are also the consequent of a reasonable ground. However, knowledge is apprehended by reasoning from ground to consequent. Therefore, if naturalism were true, there would be no way of knowing it. <laughs> or anything else except by a fluke so if naturalism is true there's no way we could ever know that it's true because there's no way we could really rationalize anything because all we are would be molecules and motions beating to the drum drum of our own chemicals in our, uh, in our brain so which of the views appear to be most accurate well <laughs> I gotta be honest I'm I'm kind of stuck between two positions. Uh, I personally think hylomorphism. I would, before I, before reading Thomas Aquinas, I would have said strictly substance dualism. But now that I'm reading the works of Thomas Aquinas and beginning to really understand where he's coming from, I think hylomorphism. Hylomorphism is dualism, and in many ways it resembles dual, uh, substance dualism to a degree. But I think hylomorphism is a good explanation, because it has that mind-body connection, but it also indicates and and argues that the spirit survives death, it goes on living beyond the scope of death. But I still think there are some very attractive things about substance dualism, and so... I'm kind of wondering if there couldn't be a blend of substance dualism and hylomorphism. Yes, I can ride the fence just as good as anyone. Uh, I, I'm not convinced by property dualism. Uh, I, I, I'm not. I don't really know about soulism, and I'm certainly not a monist. But I think of all the dualist notions, hylomorphism, substance dualism, those are the two kings. Uh, those are the two kings of the party. Those are the two biggest contenders. Uh, They're in the main event. Those are the two major contenders for the championship title. Which of the two wins out? I mean, I'm kind of leaning toward hylomorphism, but I still think substance dualism has a lot to offer. So, either of those two. (laughs) How about that? Either substance dualism or hylomorphism, in my mind, is the best answer. But regardless of which... Side of the aisle you land Concerning that notion Concerning that debate Just know this Your life is not an accident Your life has meaning Purpose and value And you are a special creation of God And that also means That also also indicates That God loves you with an everlasting love That God desires to bring you Into communion with himself God desires to have a relationship with you, because and God has a purpose for your life. And because we understand that we're made in imagio Day, and because we understand that we have a soul that survives death, we embrace, as we, yes, yesterday, I attended my first Ash Wednesday service and absolutely loved it. It's the beginning of Lent. It's, it's the beginning of this 40-day period leading to Good Friday, and culminating with the greatest day of the year, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Resurrection Sunday tells us that this life is not the end of the story. Our life continues beyond the scope of this mere mortal life, and that tells us that when we die, if we're in Christ, when we die, it's only Life has only just begun. It's not the end. (laughs) It's just the beginning. And the resurrection of Christ proved just that. So friends, no matter what you're going through, know that you are loved. Know that God loves you with an everlasting love. As we tell everybody, Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of god your life does have meaning your life does have purpose it has you are of intrinsic worth because you are a special creation of god and don't you dare let anyone convince you otherwise well, friends, this is Dr. Brian Chilton, and you've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. Next week, we're joined by Dr. Michelle Johnson as we delve in a little deeper to this topic of the Amagio Day. What is the image of God? And that's coming up next week right here on the Bellator Christie Podcast. God bless. Good night. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristi.com. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect those of Bellator Christi Ministries or its affiliates. This program is protected under Creative Commons Copyright, all rights reserved. If you enjoyed this podcast, then be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review. Also tell a friend. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas.